1, as we continue our study through the book of Acts. And uh, I did a little digging. I think this is sermon 32 in Acts. Believe it or not, there will be an end to this series. It will be worth it all when we get to that day. Don't know when that'll be. Actually, I do. It'll be late July. We'll be done with the book of Acts. Uh, But I've enjoyed it. I hope you've been blessed by God's word. I hope that you'll leave this series with a better understanding of what uh, God was trying to say to us as his church through this book. Acts chapter 21 is where we'll be tonight. You've probably heard the name Harry Houdini. He's known as the greatest escape artist of all time. In fact, uh, his name is kind of synonymous with that, isn't it? If you think of being an escape artist, you might even call someone, maybe a small child that runs around the building and you can't find him after church. You might be tempted to call them a Houdini. His fame began when he started escaping from milk jugs. Now, milk jugs back then were a different size. These were milk jugs about this big, you know, bigger ones. He would fill them with water to the brim. He would get in them. He would submerge himself fully with water, and he would have six different locks on the outside of the milk jug. And he began to become famous when he somehow managed to escape, right? It's one of those things like, how's this guy going to escape out of this situation? He got more famous as he did all sorts of other tricks. He course, you know, was known to escape from underwater, uh, chained underwater in big tanks of water, uh, did all sorts of other things. I, I told you the other day how he got famous as he traveled from town to town, uh, trying to escape uh, prison cells. He would allow the local jailer to lock him in the prison cell, and he would try and escape there. And that's how he kind of got his fame and got his fortune was, was doing that. And the name Harry Houdini has become synonymous with escaping. His most famous trick was not necessarily himself disappearing or escaping, but he's known, and I, and I did some reading on it, they still don't really, there's still debate about how he did this, but he, you know, most magicians, if they're going to make an animal disappear, what animal are they going to use? Well, a pigeon or a rabbit, Right? Well, Harry Houdini, his, one of his most famous tricks was when he made an elephant disappear. Can you imagine that? No matter what happened, Harry Houdini was known of finding a way of escape. If we followed Paul's life through the book of Acts, it almost seems like he's his own Houdini, isn't he? When we first met Paul after his salvation, if you remember in Acts chapter number 9, the way that the, the passage in Acts 9 is written is that Paul is saved and called and immediately endures persecution in the city of Damascus. And you remember that famous episode where they lower him down outside the wall in a basket, right? In Acts 14.5, it talks about how the city of Iconium wanted to kill Paul, but he managed to escape once again. Acts 16.26, Paul is miraculously broken out of prison by an angelic messenger in Acts 17, 6, the city of Thessalonica goes into this big riot and somehow they can't manage to find the guy who's been publicly preaching everywhere. He escapes. 
Acts 18, verses 12 through 16. The people of Corinth want to cause an insurrection against Paul. And he's delivered because Gallio is this indifferent city manager, so to speak. He says, ah, you guys are, you know, too up in a roar about this. You need to go home. And then the very next chapter in Acts 19, Paul stirs up again because he's preaching and the people who manufactured the local idols got upset in Ephesus and they form an angry mob that gets the whole city in an uproar. And then they can't find Paul again. They couldn't find Paul, but Paul found them, if you remember right. He wanted to go and speak to the crowd, but even some unsaved local pagan officials said, no, you don't want to touch this crowd. These guys are going to kill you. Acts 20, verse 3, Paul visits Corinth again. And we didn't really touch on this a whole lot last uh, two sermons ago, but as he's traveling throughout Macedonia and Greece, collecting these offerings for this poor church in Jerusalem, he visits Corinth again in Acts 20, verse 3. The Jews laid in wait for him. They tried to kill him again, but what happens? He escapes. He escapes. If you're just reading the book of Acts up to this point, or at least reading the life of Paul, you might begin to think that God always seems to protect people from danger and difficulty. Doesn't it seem like that? I mean, everywhere this guy goes, he's preaching the gospel. And so we get the idea in the book of Acts that you're not going to be without difficulty, but you're always going to seem to manage to escape it. It's never going to get the best of you. But we have to ask ourselves this question tonight. Is difficulty something God intends for his people to escape or even avoid? Is it God's will for people serving Jesus to always get out of trouble in the end, to always at the very last moment pull a Houdini? Perhaps you've found yourself in a situation where you've been serving Jesus with your best. You stepped out in faith to follow him. And if you're like me, you found yourself in places in life where you did the right thing at the right time, responding to the right person, and your life didn't get easier. It got harder. And maybe you found yourself asking a question like I have. Did I make the wrong decision? After all, isn't, following Jesus supposed to make things a little bit better? God, am I doing the wrong thing? Why aren't you blessing this? Our passage tonight is going to answer those questions as Paul's own ministry is going to take a darker turn. In fact, from chapter 21 on, Paul will never be a free man. He will always be imprisoned. Luke wants us to ask some of the same questions that you'll find the people around Paul asking. Can this thing be God's will if it means more difficulty and less success? Can something be the will of God if it means more pain and less fruit. 
What you're going to find in Acts 21, the few verses we'll read, is that the Spirit, through different prophets, will reveal supernaturally Paul's destiny of difficulty. That's what I've titled the message, a destiny of difficulty. And then as you read, you're going to find Paul's friends making some judgments based on those prophecies. Counsel, if you will. And then at the very end of the passage, you're going to see Paul respond with his own judgment and his own interpretation of how he's going to respond to his destiny of difficulty. Let's look at Acts 21 together. And begin reading in verse number one. And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them, as the elders in Ephesus, and had launched... We, strain, we came with a straight course unto Kos, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence unto Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. And now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unlaid her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And when we'd accomplished those days, we departed and went our way, and they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave, one of another, we took ship and they returned home again. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came into Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist. Do you remember him? Which was one of the seven and abode with him. The same had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. Do you remember him? And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle or his belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we... And they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am not ready to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. And there went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Manasin of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. We're going to kind of look at this passage in two kind of tracks. And the first theme I want you to see in the passage that hopefully you saw as we were reading through is that in several different instances, the Spirit revealed Paul's destiny 
of difficulty in Jerusalem through several prophecies. The words, if you're just reading this Bible account, which I encourage you, if you're reading your Bible, look for repeated words and phrases. That's the easiest way for you to understand what God is trying to communicate. And and if you look through this, the two repeated ideas are the spirit and prophets. The spirit or the Holy Ghost is mentioned twice. And then three different times we see these prophets or these people prophesying. There are two or three instances, depending on how you count the uh, run-in with Philip's four daughters who prophesied. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us what they said, but I'll give you a, 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 a guess as to that here in a moment. But what I want you to get, if we could do just a brief doctrinal introduction to prophecy, it might help us understand the passage a little bit better. So bear with me. When you come across prophecy in the New Testament, you have to understand, sometimes people want to trying to explain away the prophecy thing by saying, well, that just means preaching. Well, no, this is not just preaching the word of God. This is very specific foretelling of the future of an individual. And what we have to understand is that the New Testament clearly speaks of the office of a prophet. Ephesians 2 says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So, so prophecy was a thing, okay? We don't just say that was the Old Testament, it doesn't happen. It is a New Testament thing. And a prophet, I think it's important for us to define it as somebody who receives special revelation outside the scripture from God and is given to the church to tell them that revelation. If you read 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is, gives specific instructions about prophecy. And we'll get there in our series in Corinthians in several months I tend to believe, and this is my understanding of the scripture, that that office of a prophet was for a specific amount of time. It, it, wasn't, it didn't endure forever. That's why the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Apostles are no longer today, right? There's certain qualifications to be an apostle. And I think that idea in Ephesians 2 gives us the idea that prophets were there for the church for a specific time period for a lot of different reasons, but I don't tend to believe that this type of prophecy still exists today. There are people who make those arguments. I don't think they're cuckoo, but I don't necessarily think it's the best argument from scripture. Another thing that's important for you to understand when you read this passage, because when you get down to, uh, for instance, um, verse number four, when they telling Paul through the spirit not to go to Jerusalem, a lot of people, when they talk about New Testament prophecy, think that New Testament prophecy can have error. Unlike Old Testament prophecy. You know what the Old Testament standard for prophecy was, right? You don't get a single thing wrong or we kill you. That's how important accuracy was. And so some people might say, well, when you look at the New Testament, maybe there's a different standard there. There's an allowance for error. I don't tend to believe that. I tend to think that the New Testament prophets have to operate on the same strictness of accuracy as the Old Testament prophets. So here's why that's relevant to you. When we read this passage and we understand the big umbrella idea of prophecy in the New Testament, we can't look at verse number four and say, ah, they just got it wrong. We have to separate what the Spirit is saying from what those people were saying. And that much like Agabus and the friends of Paul in Jerusalem, what Paul or Luke is recording in verse number four is not the Spirit's prophecy, but their judgment based on the Spirit's prophecy, which our judgments based on the word can be misguided, but the word itself cannot be misguided, right? 
So as we work through this passage, there's three different instances of prophecy. Number f- first, number four, as I've mentioned, there's the disciples at Tyre. And these guys received some sort of revelation from the Spirit of Paul's impending difficulty. And based on that prophecy, I'm going to again say that these are two separate things. They tell Paul pretty, pretty straightforward in verse number four, don't go to Jerusalem, right? So the Spirit might have been telling them of the difficulty, but the people in Tyr were saying, Paul, based on what the Spirit's told us, we don't think you should go to Jerusalem. And then verses eight through nine, we have the four daughters of Philip. Um, there's a lot of reasons maybe why Luke would have mentioned the fact that they were virgins. I'm not gonna get into all of that. But the idea here is, again, as Paul is making his way down to Jerusalem, there are these people prophesying. Now, it doesn't tell us what they prophesied, but I'm gonna assume Luke is throwing them in there because maybe they're prophesying the same stuff. Paul, when you go to Jerusalem, it's not gonna be good. Now, Paul was a man familiar with difficulty. Are we on the same page about that? This is a man who clearly is not intimidated by troublesome times. But there seems to be a concern that what's happening in Jerusalem is extreme. And so, and then we get down to Agabus in verse number 10 through 11. That's the third instance of prophecy. And if you remember Agabus, he met Paul in Antioch and he prophesied of the famine. Remember, that's why they started taking up a collection for the people in Jerusalem. Agabus is the same guy. And Agabus says in verse number 10, or sorry, verse number 11, he grabs Paul's belt, which must have been setting aside somewhere. Uh, I, I find it funny, men, that this is the second instance that someone gets a hold of Paul's lost clothing. So, you know, if you're known to lose your clothes around the house, you just identify with the apostle Paul here, okay? So here's uh, Agabus, and he finds Paul's belt, and he says that the man who wears this belt, he, he ties it around his hands and his feet, and he says, this is what's gonna happen to this man. He's going to be bound. Look at the, the prophecy there in verse number 11. Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And next week, or sorry, two weeks from now, when we get to that account, you'll see that that's exactly what happened. Paul was bound and he was delivered. And actually, if you want to read ahead and read the, the surrounding two to three chapters on either side of this account, you're going to find that word bound used a lot on purpose by Luke. And then on top of that, Luke seems to be highlighting this descent of difficulty to Jerusalem. And did you notice as we read that it's like, Luke, are you just a geography nerd? You know, I mean, he mentions every single seaport they stopped at. And you have to ask yourself, why on earth is he so obsessed with this? And I don't know if you could see it on the screen, but, but just reading the, the travels of Paul in this passage, it's a straight southern route from Tyre to Cus to Caesarea to uh, Ptolemais, uh, which is also called Antipatris, and then down to Jerusalem. And the idea that, that Luke is saying there is he's saying, this man, Paul, he's going down to Jerusalem. There's a descent of difficulty. This reminds me a lot of Luke 18, verse 31, 32. Notice the very strange similarity between what Luke wrote in Luke 18 to what is recorded here. Is that on the screen there, Robert? This is what was said of Jesus. 
And he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Next verse. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles. Does that sound familiar? And shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted upon. Now, I'm not just highlighting that because that's a cool Bible connection. What I want you to understand is the same human author that wrote the book of Acts wrote the book of Luke. This guy named Luke. And as he's writing about Paul, what we seem to get the idea of in chapter 18 of Luke is that when Paul, or sorry, when Luke looks at Paul's journey, he says, this man is making a journey that's strangely similar to his savior. It's a descent of difficulty. He's heading to Jerusalem and he's going to Jerusalem knowing that the same fate that met his savior is gonna meet him there. And I think what Luke is trying to highlight for us is that the same as Paul walked in the steps of his savior, as Christians, we too walk in the steps of our savior and you and I are promised a destiny of difficulty. That's our destiny, much like it was Paul's. Isn't that what Jesus seemed to say? that the sufferings he would endure would be the sufferings you and I would endure as Christians. He says, if they persecuted me, don't you think that they'll persecute you? Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are you when, not if, when men shall revile you and persecute you and speak all manner of evil against you falsely. Paul didn't seem to think that his difficulties were unique or extraordinary. He says in 1 Timothy 3, 12, all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So here's the reality. What Luke is trying to communicate to us is that following Jesus may not mean that you're bound hand and foot and delivered into prison, but following Jesus means you will experience your own destiny of difficulty, much like Jesus's premier follower, Paul. I think Luke wants to warn all of us. Following Jesus inherently means that there is difficulty ahead. Is life good? Great. Difficulties ahead. Is life not good? Difficulties probably still ahead. As long as we live on this earth, we are promised that following Jesus is not a decision to make our lives better. Following Jesus is a decision to pick up our cross and endure the same difficulty he did. When you follow Jesus and you serve him, the reality is, is that your acts of devotion to Jesus may be misunderstood. They may be interpreted wrongly. They may be spoken against. It won't be easy to forgive as Jesus forgives. Forgiving may not make your life easier. It may make your life harder. Loving like Jesus loved, it won't always make you feel better. Because when we remember how Jesus loved, we also remember that at his greatest hour of need, no man stood by him. When you give as Jesus gave, like we talked about this morning, it does not mean that you are promised ease and blessing. 
Church, I think we understand this, that living godly in a culture like ours that denies biblical morality and even celebrates it specifically in this month is not going to be easy. People will mock you. The ones you might be trying to lead in righteousness will rebel against you. People will ignore you, forget about you when you do good to them. Life living for Jesus sometimes is difficult. I've, I've meditated a lot on a song lately. It might bless you as well. A guy named Josh Baldwin wrote a song called Narrow Road. The words remind me of the message of this passage. I think the chorus says, you said it'd be a narrow road. You said it would be a narrow road, so why am I surprised when it seems I'm on my own? You said it'd be a narrow road. This world would never be my home. The journey might be lonely, but I'll never be alone. I think that's a true admission that sometimes living for Jesus is a lonely road. I mean, after all, if we look at this passage, we find that even Paul's friends, even good people that surrounded him, didn't seem to agree with Paul that what he was doing was the best thing. You know, it's one thing for people who don't love Jesus to stand against us and to uh, criticize our moves, but it's another thing when followers of Jesus add difficulty to our lives. When followers of Jesus don't seem to think that our plans match up with God's will. And doesn't that remind us so much of our Savior? Because who was it that so sternly rebuked Jesus' plans of suffering in Jerusalem? It was Peter. And we find such a similar reaction to Paul's plans to go to Jerusalem from his friends. Because the other thread that runs through this passage is not just the Spirit's promised destiny of difficulty, but what we also see is all throughout the passage, Paul's friends mistakenly urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Over and over and over again. They say, you shouldn't do it, man. Don't go. If the Spirit says it's going to be difficult, if you're going to be bound, if you're going to be in prison, that means you should not go. Notice how everybody seems to think this. Verse number four, the disciples at Tyre, what do they say? Don't go to Jerusalem, right? Verse number 12, Agabus gives this prophecy. We don't seem to see Agabus giving a judgment, but all of Paul's friends jump on real quick. Look at verse number 12. It says, and when they heard these things, both we, that's Luke, and the other people traveling with them, and they of that place where they were, uh, Ptolemais, they, um, sorry, in Caesarea, it says that we, all of them said, besought him, we begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now think about this church. Can you blame them for thinking that? Just think about this on a human level. Does it make sense for the guy who has been instrumental in taking the gospel of the Gentiles to be imprisoned? If you could choose door number one, premier apostle being imprisoned and not being able to go other places with the gospel, or door number two, apostle being free to go other places with the gospel. Which one makes more sense? Well, door number two does. 
So I don't necessarily think they're dumb for thinking what they thought. And I think, church family, this is a good lesson for us. That on a basic level, I think this passage is telling us that a consensus of opinions doesn't always mean an opinion is true. I've talked to so many Christians who like, well, I, I sought counsel. Well, sometimes you can seek counsel and your counsel can be dumb. I'm just breaking it to you. If you go talk to all of your buddies who aren't necessarily in tune with the spirit, apparently these people weren't to some degree, that may not mean that their counsel is actually good counsel. If Paul's approach was, I'm gonna go seek a multitude counsel and just whatever everyone else says, I'm gonna do it, that wouldn't have led him to do the right thing, would it? Sometimes the people around us can be mistaken in their understanding of the Spirit's plan. I think also this shows us that, that two different Christians can hear the same thing from the Spirit and think two different things. They come to two different conclusions. Now we know what the true conclusion is and Paul knew what the true conclusion is because we'll, we'll see in a moment that Paul had an understanding of what um, the Spirit was telling him to do. Look at chapter 20, verse number 22. Paul says, I am bound in the Spirit to go into Jerusalem. Paul says, the Spirit is leading me there and they're saying the Spirit is not leading you there. Right? Christian, here's the reality. I think that Christians often assume that the difficult way is not God's way. That just because something is difficult, it means we shouldn't do it. Have you ever thought that? I have. Have you ever been tempted to stop doing a good thing because doing the good thing was a lot harder than doing the wrong thing? Have you ever found yourself questioning whether you made the right decision because after doing the right thing, your life immediately got harder? Man, I've been there. And I found sometimes it may not be my own mind saying that, but man, it gets real hard when, when good people around me start saying that. And I think we ought to listen to truth speakers, right? We've talked about that. But I think we also recognize that it's possible for good, well-meaning Christians, people who love you, who may not maybe be the godliest people on planet Earth, but who love you, to be mistaken. Simply because following the Lord brought you in contact with difficulty. Don't you agree that this is the mindset of our culture? That if it's inherently difficult, it must not be the thing we have to do. That, that what the world tells us to do as Christians is if it doesn't feel right, it's not right. So the culture says to someone struggling with a certain type of same-sex attraction, they say, well, if it feels right, you should do it. God wouldn't want you to fight your feelings. I've even heard Christians say to a spouse who's, quote, fallen in love with somebody else who's not their spouse, that maybe God wants you to be with that person who's left di less difficult because your current marriage is difficult. That one seems like it'd be a lot less difficult. <laughs> hey, the difficult way may be God's way. It may actually be God's will for you and I to work through difficult things rather than to run from them. 
And I think as Christians, we've got to hear that tonight. Because it's so easy to give up on hard things. So easy. We have a thousand reasons to do it. But the difficult way may be God's way. Jesus said, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it. And so here's our choice tonight. Will you follow the advice of Paul's friends or will you follow the example of Paul? Because after hearing all these people say their two cents, Paul, in verses 13 through 14, stays determined to obey Jesus despite the certainty of difficulty. Look at verse number 13. I love Paul's wording. It reminds me of his address in chapter number 20. It says, he says, what mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? You know what he says there? He says, why are you adding to my burdens? Why are you making this harder? He says, verse number 13, I'm ready not to be bound only. (laughs) I know Agabus said I'm going to be bound. I'm ready, verse number 13, to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You want to know why Paul was ready and determined to obey Jesus? Because Paul himself was convinced that this plan of difficulty came from God. Look at chapter 19, verse 21. It says that Paul had purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. Then I, I told you about chapter 20, verse 22, that he says he was bound in Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Paul, I think, knew Acts 9, verse 16, that his call to follow Jesus was a call to die to himself. And our call is not much different, is it? We may have to die to self in different ways. We may have to endure different types of difficulty. We may have to endure the same type of difficulty. Who knows? But we are called nonetheless to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And I love verse number 14. Praise God that when Paul speaks back to his friends, his friends also surrender to God's will for him. They said, the will of the Lord be done. Now, I don't know if they're saying, ah, we can't convince Paul, you know, or if they're saying, you know what? If this is God's will, let it be. Let it be so. And I think what Luke is asking us as the readers, you imagine Luke is writing to people who would be bound in much larger numbers than they were bound in the day of Paul. You realize that the most intense moments of Christian persecution, excluding today, there's more people who die for Jesus in our day than there were even in that day. But that Paul's day was not the most intense moments of persecution in the church. The 200s and the 300s were the worst. And Luke is writing to an audience that's getting closer to that time period who no doubt were facing worse things. And I think he's asking his readers and us today that Paul was willing to endure difficulty when his destiny included it, but are we? 
I think he's using Paul's example to encourage us that when your destiny includes difficulty, Christians, stay determined to obey Jesus. When your destiny includes difficulty, stay determined to obey Jesus. There will be voices in your head. There will be voices in your church. There may be voices in your family or your friends that will convince you and give you every conceivable excuse to give up doing the thing Jesus called you to do. You're gonna get tired. You're gonna feel spent. You're gonna feel like somebody else should pick up the slack and it's time for you to sit on the bench and take a break. But we have to stay determined to obey Jesus even when it gets hard. Even when it gets hard. Christian, uh, we got Christians in every stage of the journey. We got six-year-old Christians and undisclosed amount of years Christians in our auditorium. I wanna encourage you, press toward the end. Stay faithful to the end. Don't sit out. Don't give up. Stay in the game. But here's the question. How do we find the strength to keep going when our strength is gone? When we don't have the willpower to endure difficulty, where do we find it? We look to the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him, what church? For the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Luke says that. He gives us his example. I love Luke 22. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. You ever wanted to pray that prayer? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And we forget verse 43. There came, there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. If the father was willing to strengthen his own son in a time of temptation, Will he not also strengthen us as his sons and daughters? I hate to break it to you, but no one in this room has enough willpower to stay faithful to Jesus. You need the grace of God that will only come through a personal relationship with Jesus. No wonder the biblical authors seem to think that if somebody doesn't endure to the end, they're not a Christian because the only way you can endure is by the grace of God that comes at salvation. If you're a Christian, your destiny will include difficulty. I can't predict what that looks like for you because the truth of the matter is is the burdens we bear in this auditorium are so diverse, so diverse. Health difficulties that, why would it happen to us and not them? Family difficulties, family burdens, family battles. God, why'd you put me in this workplace? I'm the only one who lives for Jesus and this environment is so difficult. God, why did you give me that financial difficulty? But let me remind you, your path of difficulty is not one you travel alone. You are walking a path your Savior walked. And every great hero of the faith has walked. Don't listen to others who convince you to quit. 
Don't listen to their voices. Listen to the voice of Jesus and draw strength from him to continue. Let's spend some time tonight praying in response to the message. I'm gonna give you a couple 